what I think the Lord wants us to have for this evening. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 3 and 4. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are what? Lost. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest, or unless, the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And let's pray. Lord, help us with this heavy subject to have more confidence in how we're going to pray to sinners. Help us learn how to pray people to Jesus. And Lord, that we'd be able to see some miracles this year of people saved. And we'll rejoice with you. So teach us how to pray biblically and with wisdom and powerfully for lost people so they could be saved. In Christ's name, amen. So one of the things about praying for lost people that I like is that you can pray for everybody to be saved. We know that it is God's will that everyone be saved. How do we know that? First uh, Timothy 2.4, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. Now this flies in the face and corrects the doctrines of Calvinism, hyper-Calvinism, all of that where God is choosing some and not choosing others. No, God, it's God's desire for all people to be born again and to go to heaven. Second uh, Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So God wants everybody to get saved. You never witness to the wrong person. You never pray for the wrong person to be saved. However, we understand that God has given free will to every human. God leaves the choice of their eternal destiny up to each individual. Revelations twenty two seventeen, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, whosoever wants to, let him take of the water of life freely. And so God wants everybody to be saved, but God has left the choice up to each individual individual whether or not they trust Christ. Now we know that when people are confronted with the truth of Christ's gospel, they will respond in one of two ways. Some will believe and some will not believe. Now I know this is difficult to understand, all right? I know this is hard to remember. When you give the gospel, some people will believe, some people will not believe. Why? Because some people choose to believe, and some people choose not to believe. Acts 28, 24, And some believed the things which were spoken, and some believed not. The Apostle Paul, greatest missionary other than Jesus Christ who ever lived, as far as we know. You think his preaching was powerful? It was powerful. You think he had the Spirit of God? Absolutely. You think he knew the truth? Clearly. But still, when he preached, some believed, some believed not. Jesus Christ himself, when he preached the word, some believed, some believed not. The choice is up to each individual. Now here's the question. Why would anyone in their right mind 
reject God's free gift of salvation. You ever thought about that? Why would anyone in their right mind reject God's free gift of salvation? And I think the answer is simple. People in their right minds don't reject God's free gift of salvation. People who are thinking clearly accept Christ. Accepting Christ is logical. The gospel makes sense. Why would someone choose to go to hell over heaven? Why would someone choose to remain in their sin when all they have to do is humble themselves and accept Christ in order to be saved? And the problem is that sinners do not think clearly. In fact, they are held captive by Satan. And as they're held captive, they are brainwashed by their spiritual captor, thinking that they're free. It's almost like they have a case of spiritual Stockholm Syndrome, where they begin to defend their condition. They choose to remain in bondage when freedom is available. Now, where do we come in? One of the great misconceptions of believers is that all we can do to win the loss to Christ is to share the gospel. And of course, that's necessary. However, most believers don't understand their responsibility to pray for the lost, nor the power of intercession to see lost people saved. So we understand our responsibility to say the gospel, but do we understand our responsibility to pray the gospel? Do we understand the power, the absolute power, that praying for someone's soul has in God's kingdom? And in tonight's lesson, we're going to learn three vital truths about praying for the lost, and then I'm going to give you specific requests about how to pray for your lost loved ones. Let's dive right in. Number one, salvation of the lost requires a miracle. Salvation of the lost requires a miracle. It's impossible to rescue a sinner from damnation without God's miraculous power. In our text verse, we read that sinners are blinded by Satan. So imagine if we had a captive up here and they were blinded, and maybe their hands were tied with twine, and the door was unlocked, but they didn't know any of that, because they're blind, and they're told that they're free, or they're told that they have no choice. You know, in the old circuses, you go to a a circus, and you see a huge elephant that's held in place with just a, a small rope and a little stake in the ground. And it doesn't move. It could easily walk away and pull the stake out of the ground. But it doesn't. Why? Because when that elephant was small, they took a big heavy log chain and put it around its neck. And they drove a stake deep within the earth. And no matter how hard that elephant fought, it could not get away. After a while, the elephant learned there's no escape. So the keepers would just put a small rope and a small stake. And as soon as the... The, the elephant feels any tug, they stop because they don't believe there's a way of escape. They are 
deceived. And sinners are deceived. They're not thinking clearly. Their minds are blinded to the truth of Christ's gospel. You cannot logic a lost person to salvation. It requires a miracle. No amount of arguing, no amount of persuasion, no attempts at manipulation can regenerate the unrighteous. It requires a miracle. You would have better luck describing the beauty of a sunrise to someone who is born blind than to explain the miracle of salvation to a lost man without God's help. An impossibility. Well, it looks a little red. What's red? Well, it's red mixed with orange, and then, then there's some yellows. Hold on, what, what's orange? What's yellow? Well, you know what's a circle? Hold on, what's a circle? You know what's in the sky? What's, what's that? See, a, a person that has gone blind but seen a sunset has a frame of reference. But a person that has never seen anything with their physical eye has no frame of reference. And this is the way it is with lost people. Without the convicting power of the Holy Ghost, without the miracle of salvation, they are incapable of understanding the gospel of Christ. Why? Because their captor is blinding them. He is actively working to deceive them. Charles Spurgeon gives his testimony. He talks about the fact he had a Christian mother. He had heard the gospel many times. But then he says, I confess to have been tutored in piety, put into my cradle by prayerful hands, and lulled to sleep by songs concerning Jesus. But after having heard the gospel continually with line upon line, precept upon precept, here and there much, yet when the word of the Lord came unto me with power, it was new as if I had lived among the unvisited tribes of Central Africa and had never heard the tidings of the cleansing fountain filled with blood drawn from the Savior's veins. When for the first time I received the gospel to my soul's salvation, I thought that I had never heard it before. I began to think that the preachers to whom I had listened had not truly preached it. But on looking back, I am inclined to believe that I had heard the gospel fully preached many hundreds of times before and that this was the difference that I then heard it as though I heard it not and when I did hear it the message may not have been any more clear in itself than it had been at former times but the power of the Holy Spirit was present to open my ear and to guide the message to my heart he finishes by saying then I had thought I had never heard the truth preached before. Now I am persuaded that the light shone often on my eyes, but I was blind. Therefore I thought the light had never come there. The light was shining all the while, but there was no power to receive it. The eyeball of the soul was not sensitive to the divine beams. You see, it requires a miracle to save a soul. It requires a convicting power of the Holy Spirit to move in. It requires a miracle to raise that dead spirit to new birth again. 
We already preached an entire Bible study on God's shocking descriptions of the wicked and all the ways God describes the wicked in the Bible and how there's no possible way they could save themselves. We preached a whole other Bible study on the, the hopeless condition of the lost and all the ways the Bible describes them as being dead and lost without Christ. See, folks, there's no possible way for someone to get saved without a miracle. And we have to understand that. And it can be frustrating. However, it's a good thing we have a miracle-working God, isn't it? Because He's capable of doing it. Number two, regeneration of the wicked is the pressing desire of Christ. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one because... We talk about this often. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost, Luke 19.10. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. What would motivate him to leave heaven's throne, to leave all the glories of heaven, the adoration of the angels, the exaltations of the cherubims? What would motivate him to give up His infinite being and allow that to be somehow crammed into the body of a baby and become the Son of God who is the Son of Man. All of God and all of man. What would convince Him to live 30 plus years on this earth with the dirt of the dust and the filth of sin? At one point he cried out, how long shall I suffer you? Imagine how difficult it must have been for him to be surrounded by sin and sinners. But yet he did it, seeking to save that which was lost. To be mocked and made fun of. The truth called a liar. The creator condemned as a fraud. The savior treated like a common criminal. What would cause him to humble himself and become obedient unto death, even the death of the cross? One thing, his pressing desire to see people saved. And if we're going to have the heart of Christ, dear friend, we have to have the same desire Christ did. Do you have a pressing desire to see people saved? I mean, did you think about it at all today? Any time today did you think about when that person I'm working across from, he's going to die and go to hell if he doesn't get saved. That banker, that person working the, as a teller at the bank, and if she doesn't get born again, he's going to open her eyes being in torments. We know that Satan hates God's creation. But the question becomes, do we love the lost more than the devil hates them? Prayer has been described as love on its knees. A parent's love motivates them to pray for their children. To pray without ceasing. How much does our love for Christ or our compassion on condemned Sinners motivate us to pray for the salvation of the lost. The number one, we know 
salvation requires a miracle. Number two, regeneration of the wicked is a pressing desire of Christ. Number three, redemption of the unrighteous is spiritual warfare. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Redemption of the righteous is spiritual warfare. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 1, and you have the quickened or made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Do you see the miracle there? Oh, you were dead. I was dead, but God made us alive again. That's the new birth. That's the miracle. Verse 2, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil. The spirit that now worketh in the children of of disobedience. You know, sinners walk lockstep with this sinful world. They are under the direction of the devil, and they don't think anything about it. Now, the truth is, they look at you and I as weird if we don't go along to their excesses, but they are in full control of the flesh, of the sinful world we live on, and like as a marionette moves a puppet... Satan moves across this world directing people. Look at 1 John 5, 19. We're talking about redemption of the unrighteous is spiritual warfare. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. And we know that we are of God. Hey, are you of God tonight? <laughs> I'm glad I am in Christ. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. This means the whole world lies prostrate under the influence of Satan. In his book, The Epistles of John, John Stott made the following observation, quote, It, the world, is in the evil one, in his grip, and under his dominion. Moreover, it lies there. It is not represented as struggling actively to be free, but is quietly lying, perhaps even unconsciously asleep, in the arms of Satan. The evil one does not touch the Christian, but the world is helplessly in his grasp. End quote. The whole world lies in wickedness. When Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, his dominion over the earth passed to Satan. The evil one is now the little g God of this world until Christ redeems his creation, making a new heaven and a new earth. We learned in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not. Think about this. Christ likened a sinner that needed healing as the possession of a strong man. Mark chapter 3, verse 27, No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man and then spoil his house. The disciples had brought Christ a, a young man. Christ had been gone, and the dad actually brought the young man to, to the disciples, and they couldn't cast him out. Jesus comes back. Jesus casts out the devil. They say, well, why, why, what, what's, what's the problem here? 
in, a, in another portion of scripture I'm talking about, he says, this kind cometh forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. See, there is a strength required, a strength required to reach into what the devil controls and pull it out. Satan didn't want you and I to be saved. But thankfully, praise be to God, we were saved. His song has said, when, the, when he reached down for me, he had to reach way, way down for me. And he had to reach into the devil's possession and pluck us out. And dear friend, there are all types of people around. And God likened these people to the possession of a strong man. And Jesus said, if you're going to steal that man's possession, you've got to be strong enough to bind him. And praise be to God, our Lord is strong enough to bind the devil and take back his creation. Satan uses two main tools to enslave the unredeemed. I won't develop them. Number one, the sins of the flesh. And number two, the strongholds of the mind. We understand in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. The Bible says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So here's, here's the concept. Unbelief is the great sin that sends people to hell. We understand from John chapter 3, verse 18, that people who don't accept Christ are condemned already. So ultimately, even though we treasure up this wrath because of our multitude of various sins, <clears throat> ultimately, it is the sin of unbelief that condemns the soul to hell. People don't go to heaven because they're good, and they don't go to bad, they don't go to hell because they're bad. People go to heaven because they accept Christ, and people go to hell because they reject Christ. It's just that simple. So unbelief is priceless to the devil. It's the great prize. It's the crown. And what, but mankind is plagued by doubt and unbelief. Lost people disbelieve God, they reject Christ. Satan wants to protect that. So what Satan does is he begins to erect strongholds in the mind to keep someone in unbelief. After you are born again, Satan can't take your soul, but he does everything he can to paralyze you from meaningful service to Christ. So he begins to build strongholds in the believer's mind, trying to promote and protect doubt and unbelief. It even said about Christ, he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So Satan erects these strongholds to protect that ultimate prize of unbelief. And in a lost person, we must understand that the real goal is to get them that, to have that miracle of salvation take place. They have to repent of their unbelief, change their mind about the sovereign change their mind about their sin, change their mind about the Savior, and turn to Christ in faith in order to be saved. Their unbelief has to become belief 
but Satan not only blinds them, he begins putting these strongholds. It's like a castle, a fortification. And these are thoughts and ideas, images, stories that protect the idea. The concept of unbelief. And one thing we do when we pray for people and we're working with sinners is we pray for discernment and we look for those strongholds that are protecting what's making this person believe this. What's making this person believe there is no God? What's the stronghold? You know the number one stronghold I get nowadays? Evolution. College-educated people, the number one stronghold is, well, evolution. Everybody knows the world just came into being. It's a stronghold. They may not be able to explain it, but they believe it. You know what the second stronghold If God's there and He's so good, how could He let these bad things happen? And that concept keeps them from believing. So Satan begins to put all of these strongholds up. You know what? I knew a guy who was supposed to be a Christian. He was a hypocrite. That stuff's not real stronghold. I tried Christianity once. It didn't work for me. Stronghold. So all of these strongholds take place trying to keep someone in unbelief and what we can do through the word of God and through the spiritual weapons of our warfare is cast down those imaginations and bring every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of Christ into the obedience of Christ and once those strongholds are gone once the blinders are torn off the mind and someone can see the gospel of Christ Clearly, how could you not accept him? How could you reject him? It's interesting, sometimes you witness to people and they just don't get it. They just don't get it. Now I'm not interested. But you know what, I love witnessing to people and they're under conviction and you ask them, after you explain everything, you ask them something like this, if Jesus Christ would take you right now, just the way you are, forgive your sin, give you home in heaven, Would you like to ask him to save you? I can't count how many times I've had people look at me and say, duh, or of course, or who wouldn't? It's kind of one of those things. When you're thinking clearly, it's like, well, who would would reject that? Oh, but sinners aren't thinking clearly. So what we can do is go in the prayer closet And use one of the tools of our spiritual warfare. I've got ten tools of spiritual warfare we won't get to tonight. But one of them is prayer. And you need to understand that prayer is one of our great offensive weapons when it comes to spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6.18 Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. So in Ephesians chapter 16 we have the armor of God for the Christian. There's only two offensive weapons. One is the Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit. But I contend to you that prayer is also an offensive weapon. It's like if you're in a military battle, prayer is like air support. Now, people know, soldiers know that whoever controls the skies in a military battle has the great advantage. And why would you send ground troops on a fortified position without first softening it with 
an air attack. And people who try to, to witness to people and do the work of God without praying for their souls or praying effectively for lost people, it's like the, that those troops just charging a fortified position without ever calling in the airstrikes to soften that position. Prayer can go where we can't go. Prayer works while we're asleep. Prayer can get down in the deep depths of the heart where you and I can't get to. Why in the world wouldn't we be praying for sinners? Prayer is powerful. I've got tons of stuff here. Let me finish by just giving you the a prayer request on how to pray for people. I want to break this into two groups. And I'm just going to mention these to you. Two groups. First, how to pray generally for lost people. And then the second group, how to pray for a specific lost person. All right, so how to pray generally. Number one, pray for the Holy Ghost to work among sinners, softening hearts and opening doors. It's got to be the Holy Ghost. He's our air support. So we're calling it an airstrike. So when I'm going to go soul winning here in Wakefield, if I know where I'm going, I'm going to be praying over that spot all week long. Or perhaps I'll just pray for our town. Uh, Lord, soften hearts, open doors. I'll pray for our bus routes. Lord, soften hearts, open doors. Send the Holy Spirit. Go to house to house, door to door, person to person, heart to heart. Convict and let the Holy Spirit get in there and do His work. Number two, pray for the Holy Spirit to convict the sinner of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Of course, we've talked about that at length in the past. Sin, we want to convince them, the Holy Spirit will convince them of their sinfulness. Righteousness, the Holy Spirit will convince them of the righteousness of Christ and of God, the standard of perfection, and that they fall short. And then judgment, the idea that judgment is coming. One of these days, they're going to have to give an account for their life, and they fall short. The Holy Spirit can do all that. All right, number three, to recognize the wickedness of their sin. I've never murdered anybody. You know, like the, the lady at the well, she's a pretty good person. Jesus said, yeah, but you've been married five times. The person you're living with now is not your husband. Woo, okay. Yeah, I see that now. Right, she didn't recognize her sin. But Jesus pointed it out, and the Spirit brought it to light. Number four, understand the perfect righteousness of Christ, who is their judge. So now we're just drilling down on some of these you're going to stand before God. They're going to stand before Christ. Help them to understand that perfection is the standard. If they're not perfect, they can't go to heaven. It's not about being better than the next guy or doing the best you can. Number five, that they would sense their coming judgment before the holy God of all creation. They would sense it. They would feel it like they're being trailed by a wild animal. They, they sense this thing catching up to them. Well, that's conviction. Number six, for God to rip the blinders off their eyes so they can see the light of the glorious gospel of Christ. Number seven, to bind Satan and his minions from working to keep the lost bound and blind. Lord, bind the strong man. Go in there and bind him. Tie him up. Get him out of there. Number eight, rebuke deceiving spirits in the name of Jesus, laboring to deceive the spirit. Boy, that's a whole other thing. But the Bible talks about there are deceiving spirits who particularly are working to perpetuate these deceptions in people's lives. And we can rebuke them as well. Number nine, that they would stop listening to people who are leading them away from God. 
Lord, help them stop listening to that weirdo at work who's take, dragging them off to the bar and taking them to the gentleman's club. Lord, help them to stop listening to that dumb podcast that's trying to teach them all this stuff. Lord, I pray you'd protect so-and-so who's going to URI or Rhode Island College and, and keep them safe from these wicked, godless teachers who are trying to teach them that there is no God and they can do whatever they want. Lord, help them protect them from all of that. See how we can begin to really dig down in this? All right, number nine, or number ten. Use the Word of God quoting Scripture as you pray. Well, the Word of God is the, the, the sword of the Spirit. So we begin praying. Lord, I, I, I pray you'd save so-and-so. Lord, you, you said you're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Lord, you said you died for all people. I know you want him to be saved. Lord, I know you died on the cross to pay for the sin to make. I mean, start quoting Scripture to the Lord. Using that Scripture in a plea for that person's soul. Number 11, Pray for God to send soul winners to share the gospel. Maybe you've got a loved one out of town. You don't know where there's a good church. Lord, send a soul winner by. Lord, raise up a church in that town. Lord, help them to run into somebody that has the gospel and that will witness to them. Or we're praying for lost people in another part of the world or for missionaries or even for someone else we're witnessing to. All right, so let's move into some specific, how to pray for a specific individual to be saved. All right, number one, pray for God to put a hedge of protection from satanic influence about them. Name the offenders if you know them. Lord, I pray for Bob to get saved. You know his friend David's drawing him away from you. He's a hindrance. I pray you'd, you'd, you'd stop that. Put a hedge of protection about him. Lord, you know that I'm praying for teenage Larry to get saved. And, and Lord, he's listening to that acid rock, that blasphemous music. Lord, I pray that you'd get him away from that stuff. I mean, you just... Since it's a specific person, you can begin drilling down on the specifics of the situation. All right, number two, pray for God to sanctify them or set them apart for salvation with the Spirit. Lord, I just wish, I ask you, Lord, to, to, to set him apart, pull him out of that crowd, pull him out of those sins that are, are keeping him away from you, Lord. Put a hedge about him, sanctify him. Lord, would you please pull him out of that mess and save his soul? And so we begin to, to drill down. Number three, pray for God to reveal their sinfulness and shine the light on their specific sins. So if you know the person, you're probably familiar with their sins, right? So you begin naming their sins in prayer as you're asking God to help them see their sinfulness. Lord, help Joe to see that. That bar is not the place where he needs to be, and that alcohol is not what he needs. And God, help him to help the alcohol not to taste good anymore. Help that weed to make him sick to his stomach. Help, help that place that he goes just to make him nauseous. And you can begin praying these things. You say, well, I don't know if you should pray those things. Well, well you better tighten up because, <laughs> you know, we're, we're getting to somewhere. But listen, how much do you want somebody to be saved? Lord, lay him down in a bed of roses tonight. Make his life peaceful and easy. Help everything to go well. Folks, you know, the truth is most people don't get saved when their life's going great. Most people get saved when they come to the fact that they need a Savior. And we have to be willing to let loved ones get there. All right, next. Pray for God to reveal to you the strongholds keeping them from Christ so you can address them with God's word. So Lord, help me know, help me know why Joe doesn't want to get saved. Help me to understand. Give me some discernment here. What and the Lord might say, He's got this issue, or He was 
she was abused when she was a child or or uh boy she's she's highly educated and she's had all these teachers and and so you can begin to discern with God's help maybe what the problem might be and then you take the word of God and apply it to that situation All right number 5 pray for God to remove the pleasure from sin and make his sin exceeding sinful. So I already talked about this a little bit. But, but folks, sin is like an intoxication. It distracts people from the real problem. And sin gives just enough pleasure to perpetuate a cycle of pleasure and pain that people get stuck in. And what we need to do is help them to understand sin hurts. Lord, take the pleasure from sin. Help them to see it for what it is. See, now we're, we're praying specifically for a lost person. You think God can do that? Sure he can. Number six, pray for God to send believers into their lives to share and affirm the gospel. So maybe you're witnessing to somebody and he's not listening to you. Ask God to send someone else to witness to him. Sometimes it takes multiple people. Number seven, pray for their heart to be prepared to receive the word. Last Wednesday night we talked about the soil. The problem's not with the seed or the sower. The problem's with the soil. So we need to pray for God to prepare their heart, break up their fallow ground, soften their hard heart, all of those things. Number eight, beg God to remove their heart of stone and replace it with the heart of flesh. This is from Ezekiel 36, 26, something God said he would do so we can pray specifically for that. Someone's got a hard heart, a good prayer. Number nine, beg God to make the conviction so real and so heavy that they can't deny God's invitation. So this is something I often pray. I'll say, Lord, I know you won't make anybody get saved. I understand not. I'm not asking you to violate their will. But Lord, I'm asking you to make conviction so real and so heavy that they can't deny you're speaking to them. That they can't deny that you're calling them. I mean, Lord, make it hard for them to breathe. Give them a shortness of breath. Give them a a weight in their soul that they can't deny. Give them a restlessness in their spirit. Make it so obvious and so evident. I know you won't say them against their will, but God, would you please convict them in such a way they can't deny. And see how now it's, Lord, say, bomb. (laughs) Or we're on like number 15 of now we're drilling down on somebody. I mean, we're in the prayer closet fighting for someone's soul. You see the difference? All right, let's move on. Number 10, demand the sinner be set free in Jesus' name. Number 11, plead the blood of Christ to cleanse him. We talk about some of these things in the, the 10 uh, weapons of our warfare. Jesus' name is one of the weapons. The blood of Christ is one of the weapons. Number 12, and here's, here's where it gets real. Ask God to do whatever is necessary in the the life of the lost one to bring them to saving faith in Christ. God, do whatever is necessary. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5 is the scripture. The Bible says they turned their flesh over to Satan so that God could save their soul. Lord, do whatever it takes. Do whatever it takes. Do you have that kind of I don't want them to be in pain. Then they're probably not going to get saved. I mean, you turn them over. You turn them over. 
Lord, let Satan do whatever needs to happen, but you save his soul. Sometimes things need to get pretty rough before these hard-headed sinners figure out they need Jesus. Number 13, praise God for his saving power and for saving them ahead of time. One of the weapons of our warfare is praise. Praise God for his saving power. Lord, I know you could save Joe. I know he's a rascal. I know nobody believes he can get saved. But Lord, I know you can save him. I know your power. I mean, just brag on God for a little bit. And then, praise God for saving him ahead of time. Lord, you know what? By faith, I'm just going to praise you for saving him. And I'll tell you what, whenever you save him, we are going to have a party. When we praise, God gets happy and he gets busy. Number 14, beg for their soul with tears. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. Truth is, folks, we just usually don't care enough. And we want them to get saved, but not enough to cry about it. <laughs> you know, not enough to, to pray about it like this. We need to get moved with compassion to where we're willing to do what it takes. I mean, do you start praying for, for Lisa and your eyes fill with tears because you wanted to get saved so bad. You start praying for grandma, grandma, aunt, uncle, brother, sister. You just, you just begin to weep because you want to get saved so bad. The Apostle Paul said, I could wish myself accursed for my brethren. Here's what the Apostle Paul said. I'm not here yet. All right, pray for me. The Apostle Paul said, I'd be willing to go to hell if the nation of Israel gets saved. I'm not there yet. But the truth is, most of us aren't even on, on the path to that. we got to care. And then lastly, number 15, ask God to glorify himself by gloriously saving this sinner and empowering them to serve the Lord. One of the prayers God always answers is glorify yourself. So we ask God to glorify himself in this way. And not just, a, not, not just a profession, although I'm thankful for every genuine profession of faith, but I mean God, save him gloriously. I mean, just save him gloriously. Where everybody in town knows Jimmy got born again. And he's given up everything. I mean, he's not going to the bar anymore. He's, he's not cussing anymore. I mean, he's going to church three times a week. Lord, save him gloriously and glorify yourself. Boy, folks, these are powerful prayers. And so I want us to take these things, and when we're praying for people to be saved, go a little bit deeper than save Bobby, save Jimmy, save so-and-so, save so-and-so. Man, I want you to put, here's my, my admonition for tonight. I want you to pick three people. I want you to pick three people and I want you to put them in, their, in your spiritual crosshairs and I want you to fight for them in prayer. I mean, you plead and you beg and you fight and you go to your war room, not, not carnal weapons of warfare, but you're going to fight for their soul. I wonder, I believe we could see some people saved this year. Some hard cases, some difficult ones. God can do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth. 
I pray that you'd help us to have a burden for lost souls, a burden enough to pray, not just to pray for them, but to fight for them on our knees, to go to that spiritual prayer closet and fight for them, to beg, to plead, to bring in that air support. And Lord, we praise you. We know you're powerful enough to save anybody. And I pray that you'd gloriously save some people this year. And they'd give you praise and honor for the rest of their lives and for eternity.